Testing, testing, testing. Can you hear me? This is Audible Autism. Hi, it's Otto, and today's episode is going to be something different from Audible Autism. This is going to be something of a project, or maybe an investigation, depending how you want to define it, as a look into work and, you know, the the issues in regards to autistic people in the workplace, how they try to deal with these issues, and how they affect autistic people in the work environment. And enjoy. The first person who I went to talk to about this was Sarah, and she told me a rather surprising story about her time in a particular job where the way the person interacted with her and treated her as an employee was rather jarring and in some places kind of condescending. Yeah, so I worked for someone in a learning disability service and it was just kind of crazy because she didn't... She knew what autism was, but she thought that... um, But what she thought autism was didn't apply to me. Um, And she kept trying to apply what she thought autism was to me. Um... And if I resisted, then it was my fault um, because I wasn't like accepting appropriate support, even if what she was doing wasn't supportive or appropriate. Um, I ended up writing a complaint in the end because she was making me really depressed and anxious, like constantly worrying about like how I was possibly going to fit into this like weird constricted box that she constructed for me. Um, so she used to say things like, you need to manage your time better. And I'd be like, well... My work's either done or I can't do this task right now because it's related to a client appointment that hasn't happened yet. Um, Or I would do this thing, but I'm waiting for someone else to reply to an email. um, So I can't do what you're asking me right now. And she just wouldn't believe that any of these were legitimate reasons for not doing stuff. Um, And I was like sitting around at work twiddling my thumbs because I was bored and didn't have anything to do. And she wouldn't give me any extra work to do because she was saying that I just wouldn't be able to cope with it because I wasn't managing my time properly. Um, I was there for six weeks and she just kept telling me how bad I was at time management and I kept denying it and in the end it reached the point where she demanded that I update my work calendar in real time with what I was doing so she could check and make sure that you know I was being appropriately supported and this and that Um, and when it turned out that actually I'd been right all along and she was wrong she tried to claim that I'd like undergone this like miraculous like growth under her like tutelage and it was just oh it was the most frustrating thing that's like ever happened to me and it was the first and only time that I've ever been actively discriminated against for being autistic in the workplace um, in a learning disability service and she just wouldn't accept that there was a difference between what she'd learned about autism and this living, breathing autistic person in front of her. So strange. A lie which is quite surprising and disappointing to hear somebody say that about their experiences with hot desking. But if we're being honest, C's story about dealing with hot desking isn't just limited to her. It's also an issue dealt 
dealt and faced with by many, many people with autism in this country. And it's exactly as she says it is. It's a lie. People in these positions try and sell the unemployed on the idea that hot desking is going to be provided for and it's going to be a learning experience when it turns out actually that the experiences of doing hot desking are anything but. As surprising as Sarah's story was, it actually isn't really that uncommon. There seems to be a trend in a lot of work environments where people who say that they work with people who have disabilities do it more so to make themselves look good rather than for any reasons that could be seen as sympathetic or as a way of understanding people. I mean, I've spoken to one or two people in my own personal life where the responses they've had from look you know from how people work in disability services they wonder for god's sake you know considering these people already have it tough you could at least give them some kind of understanding or sympathy but no if anything they tend to treat them harsher than the regular neurotypical clients they sometimes have to deal with yeah so it it was quite interesting i was talking to a friend um about our jobs and he was saying oh, I, I just don't understand how people have the time to do all of this stuff on Facebook um, I just I constantly work from you know nine till five and I was saying I I can't really identify with that and he said um, what do you mean um, and I said well I, I all of my work is like done um, in like half the time that like, other people seem to take to do it so I just have quite a lot of time to like check Facebook and look at it and he was like, what? And I I don't, I mean, this, this certainly doesn't apply to all autistic people because the chap I was talking to was autistic, but uh, there does definitely seem to be like an efficiency about the way that I work um, where I can graph the project and deliver on it um, and then still have time left over. And my managers have often just not really known what to do about it because they'll give me a task that will like take someone several hours to do and I'll be like, right, okay, cool. Done in half an hour. I'm going to lunch. I'll see you later. And... They just don't really know what to to do with that. It means I get a lot of breaks. If there was one thing that I took away from listening to Sarah's stories is that I get the impression that in office environments, they're not all that prepared for somebody with that kind of productivity. They'll make adjustments for people who have disabilities, but it seems like when they give somebody with, when they give somebody the task to handle a couple hours work and they do it in half or three quarters of the time they're completely lost in terms of what they what they want to do i mean i suppose it different it differs in terms of industry because when i worked at my first job let's just say if there was any concessions for my disability it sure didn't feel like that And this was a place where the impression I got was it seemed like they didn't really care. And compared to an office environment job, I was on my feet all day with no breaks whatsoever. So it was a strange experience. It was strange and something that I had to kind of ruminate on after listening to what Sarah had to say. But she wasn't the only person I spoke to in regards to my investigation about work.
The next person I decided to speak to was Sava. You don't often hear much from him because he's usually involved in the market and and distribution aspect of Audible Autism. But he came with a very, very analytical and interesting take on his experience in the workplace, which was slightly more positive than Sarah's experience, but still was just as interesting nonetheless. Um, okay, so uh, Sava is a researcher, um, and you wanted to talk about your original experience and how you got into that to do the autism. Yeah, um, I'm Sava, I'm a freelance uh, business researcher and analyst. Um, I got into this line of work, which is quite different to what I studied at university, which is English literature, um, through through the recommendation essentially of another autistic friend, um, and a scientist. But like she just told me that a um, there was a temporary vacancy going um, at a London consultancy, and they just needed someone. Uh, who can do online research, um, who can do some sort of, um, like, basic data analysis, um, like, also including telephone and stuff, but I was sort of allowed that. And um, they were specifically outreaching? And they were not specifically outreaching for autistic people, um, but it ties into um, what these companies are doing. Mm-hmm to look for autistic employees and and the in a mirror of my that their initial mirror of my experience. I won't talk about that. Um, so for the last few years, um, like corporations have been um, piloting um, outreach diversity schemes specifically targeting uh, autistic people. Um, and in the one that that was most influential um, was the 2013 scheme uh, launched by SAS, which is IT um, company, and they specifically looked for just the people with a variety of computing skills. Uh, the program did very well. They marketed it really well. It, it was great news for uh, their PR strategies and. Um, and they competed as a girl another sexist caught on. Um, about 15 months ago, the EY, which is one of the, they call that big four accounting firms, also did a lot of consulting work and provision of business services, uh, a filial of which I ended up initially working at, um, rolled out a similar scheme, uh, which includes a, two, like, a period of two week training, um, like just for the autistic employees to kind of get them on board uh, with the sort of thing expected and also kind of observe what they may need um, and how to adjust to that. Um, the director of EY said that uh, the main challenge has been finding the people. Um, National Autistic Society has released statistics that says that you know, 16%, only 60% of adults have full time employment. Um, the rest, I don't know. I thought it was interesting to take a stop for a moment in that 
Savas research posed some interesting figures about autistic people trying to get into employment. It was interesting to make note that from what me and Sarah were hearing, because Sarah wanted to also take part further in this discovery, that there have been schemes being set in place to try and get people with Asperger's to try and get them into work. But for some reason, it doesn't exactly seem to be translating to what's actually happening in the workplace. So I just thought I would interject here before um, Sarah raises a really interesting question, I think, to Sarah. Do you think that's true? Um, I think it's really difficult to... I think the numbers are high. Um, of people in work and full time. Um, I guess it it depends on what we mean by full time, whether we mean permanent contracts or whether we mean you know working eight hours a day for for one employer. Um, but I haven't thought about it like more rigorously than that. Like my instinct is that um, like that the number is too high. You think there are fewer people? I think there's fewer people. What do you think? What do I think? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the um, all data we have on the percentage of autistic people who are and who are not X um, is hugely skewed by the fact that a very large number of autistic people are undiagnosed and unknown about. Sarah also gave us some interesting personal examples and other workplace examples in terms of adjustments and their experience in the workplace. I was doing it in front of a blue screen. I was doing it over a white desk with a tab. They sit me in this particular place in the office. I don't know why. It's a huge office. Like, you know, there's, like, Ivy League, like, grad scheme people, like, bopping around in beanbags, like, you know, crumbling biscuits all over themselves. Like, it doesn't look like they're very busy. Like, why do I have to sit at a horrible desk? And fluorescent light right above me. So the fluorescent light hits the white plastic surface. And there's also blue screen. You know, I'm looking at all these graphs, like, like constantly catching up my own, just, like, typos and whatever. Um, and, like, and, and I walk out of the office with a migraine, like, every single time. And, like, I didn't even realise what was going on for ages. Um, and I think it can be dip Although, like, under, I think, EU law, you have to provide reasonable adjustments. But you have to say what the adjustments are. Um, but there is not a lot of, a lot out there. Uh, you know, even for diagnosed people, let alone you know, all sorts without, um, to you know, to know what to suggest to employers. If I ask for something and it's not in the right tone, they think I'm brassy. So the whole like blunt honesty, um, I think it's kind of this like fantasy. Like it's like it's worked a few times for them, but like I imagine on aggregate, it disadvantages autistic employees more. Even if your managers are fine with you. Your co-workers might not be, or your man's manager might think you're a problem. Besides accuracy. And, like, I'm not incapable of working a different way, but if I don't understand why, um, like, my brain just won't let me do it. And I'm really, like, I, I don't like saying my brain does my brain that, but, like, but like I, I do think it's, like, a neurological thing. But when a manager explains the rationale for working a certain way, like, once I kind of see the whole project, then I can adjust. Mm. 
the last person me and Sarah spoke to was our next guest, C, who we spoke to specifically about her experience in regards to hot desking. Um, C goes in to explain what hot desking is for those of you at home who don't know, but it turned out to be quite an enlightening discussion about it. So yes, at the moment, um, there are far more people than there are desks, um, which is uh, which is which is quite stressful for me um, because I want to know that everything is going to be the same always, which is obviously not always entirely possible. But um, I've started a new job, and so there's a lot to take on, and it's one of the things I'm I'm struggling with a little bit, and I think. So there's, there's clearly an option for me to kind of say, putting my hand up and being like, I'm Aspie, I need, I need a seat on my own. Um, and I think one of the things that's, that's tricky is, is navigating, you know, that identity and that identity at work. And I don't particularly have a problem uh, talking about it or being out at work in that in that respect um but it's still not entirely comfortable to, to mm. advocate in in that way um when everyone else is struggling because you know everyone hates spot desking mm. yeah I, I don't know like as a locum like i move where i'm workplaces every few months and like i've uh, you know the nhs is also very into hot desking um, because, as you say, like, efficiency, like, the idea is that you could, like, pick up and go anywhere and, like, you know, do your work remotely and all this kind of stuff. But the reality is, like, people sit down at their hot desk desk and put up their pictures and that sort of thing. And I, I was at work today and I, uh, you know, sat down at a desk and got all of my work and the owner of that desk came in two hours later and was like, oh, I guess I'll sit somewhere else. And it's just like, no, no, I'll get up out of out of your desk and go somewhere else you know um so i do feel like you know it sounds like a good idea but it's also a bit of a lie um says it all doesn't it a lie and it kind of shows the problem at the heart of the matter is that these workplaces in question they promise the world and everything in it and in reality what they give you doesn't live up to these prompt these lofty promises of what they'll be able to do for you and then specifically in regards of hot desking the freedoms that are promised actually aren't freedoms in reality if anything they're far more limiting and they call for maybe more flexibility than some aspies can manage i mean talking from personal experience i know i've been in one or two environments or places in volunteering where they haven't exactly been so forthcoming and helpful so it's just an ongoing problem at the moment i can't exactly say what should be sorted but there should be more honesty in regards to what these places can do we're not saying that we're helpless or anything like that we just need the system to make the day go by easier in order for us to be able to do what need be but of course you say that to certain people and they think you're asking for the world and everything in it 
I would just like to use this outro to say thank you to everybody involved. Thank you to Sarah. Thank you to Sarah. But especially thank you to C, who the next portion of this episode will be an interview about her special interest, which is labour markets. And I know, I know, upon first hearing that, that must sound very perplexing, but you give it a little bit of time with this interview, and I think you'll be quite intrigued, and you'll be wrapped up in her passion for labour markets, and might get something of an understanding of it. And to everybody who listened to this episode, thank you, and till next time. Um, All right, so we are here with uh, C. MacDonald, who is a government economist in DEFRA, um, which is part of the civil service, Um, and uh, she's here to tell us about her interest in labour markets. Um, So thank you very much for coming on. Um, And I guess my first question would be, what is a labour market? Um, and what exactly is it that you do with them um, in your job? Okay, so very broadly, labour markets are uh, the process by which people find jobs and mm. employers find people. And my first job in the civil service, which I loved, it was my favourite thing, mm. uh, was working as an analyst in labour markets. Now, big thing we did was every month, the new labour market stats come out mm. and so it gave me this kind of heartbeat to the to the work mm. and I really loved it because it meant suddenly I had a way of categorising people and a way of kind of relating to people and thinking about people um, and so I just loved that these were these there were these tables of numbers and it was my job to, to know them and to know the lines mm. so the kind of briefing lines that you'd use and so when press office would ring up or private office would say, there's a newspaper claiming this or the opposition have asked this, mm. um, it was my job to be able to not only know those numbers, but to be able to use them in an, in an intelligent way. So that was really enjoyable. And, um, and it just kind of imprinted on me. And so uh, I, I really... It's the way I think I relate to people. I'm always mostly interested in what their jobs are. Um, what their jobs are, but also, uh, so in, uh, in the labour market, you break people up into being uh, economically active, unemployed or employed. Mm. And so I don't, uh, I don't think having a job is better than not having a job. Mm. Um, it's about where people are in relation to where they want to be. Um, and so, yeah. That's do, you, do you have people who are difficult to categorise? So, the really beautiful thing about the ILO definitions, this is the International Labour Organisation, mm. is that the categories are mutually exclusive. So, you do have people who are kind of on the edge, and it's all self-reported, but I really like that beautiful thing of everybody fitting into to one of these columns in the, in the stats release. Um, and it's about whether you have done paid work in the reference week or whether you have been actively looking and available for work. And so to me, there's this kind of beauty in being able to to meet people and see where they would be in these various uh, columns. It sounds 
it sounds really nerdy, even though, even when I'm saying it out loud, but um, I think it was just a way of kind of restoring order. No, it does sound really ordered, but I, uh, the main thing that comes to mind is what about people who um, are carers mm-hmm. um, or people who are you know, homemakers, like that kind of thing? Like, are they economically inactive? And if so, like, but surely they are contributing to the economy in a way. Yeah, so. So it's just one way of thinking about people. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of other ways of thinking about people as well. So the International Labour Organization says you break people down like this. You ask them them this question. You say, did you have a job Mm. in the last week? And if they say yes, they're employed. If you say, um, were you actively looking for work? Mm. And you can be... Um, you can be a homemaker and actively looking for work. You can be a carer and employed. Lots of people in work mm. are also carers. So people have these overlapping identities and quite complex identities in many cases. Um, and so the, the labour market stats represent one method of thinking about people. Um, but you can also look at, I mean, for the job that I was in, mm. you can also look at people uh, based on what benefits they're claiming. Um which in many ways is not a terribly helpful sometimes way of thinking about people. Um, I, I have a question I'd like to ask. What initially drew you to labour markets in the first place? It was complete randomness. So I, um, I finished university and I was really lucky to finish university in 2007 um, because I failed all the exams to get into the civil service, but this was just before the crash and they were desperate for economists. <laughs> And so even though they, I had uh, failed at everything, uh, they took me on. And because uh, the Department of Work and Pensions um, has so much it needs to do in terms of uh, delivering benefits, um, they, need, they employ a load of economists. And I got, um, and I got picked up and, and put into that team. And I'm sure if, I'd, um, if my first job in government, I think, had been uh, working as a trains economist, and that would probably have been, I'd spent, you know, five years thinking about trains and I'd be super excited about different types of trains. Um, and I'd be reading books thinking, oh, what kind of train are they going to get on now as they solve the murder? Um, but instead, so it just, it happened to be, to be that. Um, but I think what appealed to me, yeah, is it gave me, um, it gave me a way of thinking about the world and about people, which I like because people can be difficult. And I also, you know, as I've, you know, I no longer work in that area, but I really like, um, I really like helping people to get jobs. You know, sometimes it can be really tricky and especially for something like the civil service, it can seem really difficult if you're applying for a job in the civil service. Um, but actually there's a way of doing it. And so, um, I like helping people with things like that. And I also think, um, one of the things that sometimes holds people back from the job that they want is they don't get the encouragement from people. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm like, yeah, a one woman cheer team for anyone who's thinking of applying for a job or applying for a promotion. Um, because not everyone, not everyone is happy in work and not all employers are lovely. And I'm, I'm not pretending that those things are true. Um, but I think finding a good workplace and a good employer can be a really um, positive thing yes. uh, for people. It sounds um, like it sounds like you you, uh, you very much recognise that sort of you know you, you essentially work in statistics, but each statistic is a person. 
Yeah. It's, it tends to be the. It's usually the opposite way around. Sometimes how people tend to talk about it because they just see people as like, we have to go and fit, you know, try and fill in these quotas or mm-hmm. trying to meet these certain numbers by particular period of like the work year or whatever. So it's a, I guess it's a more human way of looking at the, looking at people trying to get into work rather than just we have to meet these numbers or whatever. Yeah, and what you learn as a government economist is how to be smart with numbers. And sometimes you deploy that to the benefit of ministers. But in order to be a really good economist, a really good social scientist, you have to be able to understand that they're not just numbers, that they are an abstraction, you know. So we have a number for the number of people in work. Um, It'll be somewhere over 30 million. Um, and you could look at that number and say that number is badged. It's a national statistic. The ONS have the Office for National Statistics have signed it off. But all it really represents is that, you know, there was a survey, it's an ongoing survey, and these people said yes to, to being in work. Lots of people will be working on the black market. Lots of people will be doing work, like you say, that's not necessarily economically numerated we put a we put a circle around these things and say these things are work um but if you were doing you know if you were perhaps doing sex work or if you were if you're doing um yeah caring or there's lots of other there's lots of other exchanges people make with their family with their friends with their community in order to survive i've just um so in i've taken some time off from work recently and i was woofing uh, which is willing workers on organic farms, and so you get um, you get room and you get bored and you, you know, spend thirty hours picking peas and feeding chickens and it's lovely, um, but it wouldn't be counted as work no, no, in those no. in those statistics. No. Um, so you, you talk about people being given surveys. So who is when does that who who is getting these surveys? Like how is that done? So. Uh, I love talking about the labour market. <laughs> and now I've just started a job in where I'm responsible for fish and I don't know anything about fish and it's so nice to talk about. Talk about the labour force survey. Yeah, so when I joined the government, I had no idea. I think I just assumed that the government just knew everything, mm. that, that, you know, they were kind of omniscient and that they, you know, they took money off my national insurance off my job when I was you know, working in a care home so they must just know and actually they don't it's amazing how much government don't know and how little they share between departments so um, there's a survey called the labour force survey and it's going on all the time and it's carried out I think by the office for national statistics um, and it's a huge survey um, and that is how they know uh, lots of information about things like not only who's in work, what kind of work are you doing? They ask really specific questions like, um, you know, did you do you get up for training? Do you, did you do overtime last week? Did you work more or less than your contracted hours last week? Do you manage someone? Um, and then they, they break it down. And that's how they can think about changes that are happening in the, in the economy and, and in the labour market. So you can see things like, zero hours contracts um i i do want to pick up briefly on, on something that you mentioned earlier you said um that uh you know if you if you had gotten to trains then you would have you know you would be reading books 
and sort of imposing a book about trade on it. You do this with labour markets? Oh, yeah. So when I'm reading a book, I, I'm, yeah, I always love it when people get jobs or when they're thinking about jobs. And um, at the moment, I'm um, a friend of mine's organised a weekend where we all go away for the weekend and we discuss the booker shortlisted books. And so I've been frantically reading these these books. And my favourite thing in the books is when anyone talks about the job that they're thinking of doing or this job that they did. So it's, um, yeah, I think I think it is the kind of the framework through which I think about people. I'm really bad at recognising people's faces and I can never, I can never remember who's married at work and who has children and all of that details I'm quite bad at. Um, but I pick up on... But you remember all their jobs. I remember their jobs, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're like me in a way in that my short-term memory is really bad when it comes to those sort of things. But in terms of long-term, where it comes to remembering specific details and what have you, I, just like that, I can remember that. I can even remember what the room looked like or whatever. So mm-hmm. I can totally understand where you're coming from. Yeah, I mean, I, I always remember everyone's religious views on everything. Um, so yeah that's quite interesting um so uh the people that you work with um are they do they did they sort of fall into it like do they like labor markets as much as you do or is it just kind of a a job to them i think for most people it it's a job that they do kind of passing through um one of the things so there are lots of analysts in the civil service some of them are statisticians some of them are economists or operational researchers and sometimes what happens is is people stay in a job for a long time which I did to a degree with labor markets and then you kind of get entrenched and those are your numbers and you don't like anyone else using your numbers because they might use them wrong um and so there's there are some people who um yeah who can get very nerdy about their subject area and those people are really useful in the civil service because they've got a really long institutional memory. Um, whereas lots of other people will switch jobs, mm. you know, once a year, um, every two years. But they're not passionate about it, for a better word. Yes, but, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so the idea is that the civil service is politically neutral and that it is able to turn its hand to whatever mm. ministers want. And sometimes people who end up feeling really passionate about things really struggle and I my kind of passion um, or excitement about the labour market isn't dedicated to one particular labour market policy I'm I'm pretty policy neutral but um, I have um, I have been quite upset when people have used the numbers in the wrong way um, in ways that were not great I am yeah, I, I can remember uh, ruining my dad's 50th birthday, which we'd all made a big deal of. So my parents live in Cornwall, you know, my brother and sister, we lived all over the country and we all got together. We planned this meal. We were all going to do a different course of the meal. And, um, and I ended up having a big argument with my dad about whether or not he fully understood what the open vacancy statistic was. <laughs> and I was like, it's published by the Office of National Statistics. It's a national statistic. Don't you know what these things mean? Um, because because in the moment I can get like so caught up in, like when you're, when you're a government economist, your job is to be 
the pedant. Your job is to be the person who is like, you can say this in a speech, you can't say this in a speech. Mm. You're, you're fact-checking. Um, I used to, so the labour market statistics come out on a Wednesday morning and PMQs is obviously Wednesday lunchtime. Mm. So I used to check the briefing pack and update the, brief, the labour market section of the briefing pack for PMQs. And we'd have like, arguments yeah. with number 10 about how they want to use the how they want to use the numbers not not big exciting arguments we had a lot of um this is so nerdy we had a lot of arguments over the fact that what's measured in the headline measure of employment is the number of people in work okay and that's the thing that you care about if you're a government you care about people in work you don't care about the number of jobs that those people have because if you have um you know four part-time jobs that doesn't mean that you're having a great time that probably means you're in lots of low-paid casual work but what they want to be able to say is there are three million more jobs yeah yeah and i and so i would have lots of conversations about they're not jobs they're people one person could have two jobs um and so so sometimes that pedantry i think is is useful and appreciated and um, I certainly had a huge amount of energy for staying up late and fact-checking people's briefing, which at the height of the recession um, was definitely to the benefit of everyone. And then sometimes I, I drive people up the wall. Yeah, well, I was, I was just going to ask, you know, do you think that uh, being autistic helps you in this field? Um, it, it sounds like it does. Yeah, I think it does in some ways. So um, I... When I was working in labour markets, um, it didn't occur to me that I was autistic. Um, and I had, um, I certainly had uh, times with senior officials and with ministers where um, I have got really upset that they were not understanding something mm. or using using um, story in number wrong. <laughs> <laughs> And so there's, there's, you know, protocol about those kind of things and you're not supposed to interrupt ministers and, you know, you have to do the kind of polite civil service thing. But there are times when I have um, just completely forgotten the polite civil service thing, which, so this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go, uh-huh, uh-huh, right. And then when you leave the meeting, you send an email to their private secretary going, here is a thing I don't think the minister quite understood in that briefing session. And then you let their private secretary deal with it. But um, there have been moments where I have just, yeah. Was these, just a curious question, was any of these like high, high profile ministers or was there more like people who played a background role within, within, the, within these departments that you were meeting? Um, so there, I mean, cabinet ministers, yeah. Okay. okay. Remain nameless. Yeah, um, yeah, no, don't, don't, don't mention them. <laughs> um, so um, I asked you about sort of like, uh, you know, whether people that you work with are into labour markets. And I think you also hinted that there are a lot of people outside of DEFRA who are into labour markets who might be coming from a, a sort of partisan perspective. Yeah. Um, but I guess what I'm interested in is like, are there people who are just really into labour markets? Um... <laughs> no, it's a really weird thing. Um, so I think there are lots of people who care about labour markets. There yeah. are lots of people who care about workers, yeah. who care about workers' yeah. rights. There's lots of people who care about um, disability benefits. Um, and a lot of the 
things that the government is trying to do is to use what they euphemistically call conditionality, um, which is saying, you need to do this or I'll take away your benefits yes. in um, order to get people back into work. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with okay. that. I've been through that process personally. Yeah, it, it's, I can't comment on government policy. It happens. Um, so, so there are lots of people who are interested in the policy side of things. I think it's relatively rare for people to be like, oh, that really exciting table three of the ONS stats release. Um, table three of the ONS stats release is the one that breaks up employment by type. So it tells you how many permanent full-time jobs there are. Um, so, so I think there are rel relatively few people who, um, yeah, an, an almost non-existent number of people who there isn't there isn't like a, a geeky blog out there somewhere you know like UK polling report just posts polls there are labour market economists who write serious things oh. about the labour market um, and yeah there are lots of organisations like the Joseph Roundtree Foundation Citizens Advice Bureau um, lots of kind of think tanks and charities and political parties who have lots of thoughts on the labour market and I think there are also lots of people who on an individual level why they wouldn't express it in the same way that I express it um they like people to do well um and they like their friends to do well and so they're very happy to sit down and you know look at people's CVs and cheerlead them and um and I think especially among um especially among my female friends, um, when there's issues about going for promotion and things like that, mm -hmm. and going for good jobs, um, people are very, very, um, they can be very sort of supportive and recognise that actually sometimes people need a bit of a push. But you're very much someone you're like, you're a person who could be in work. Uh... <laughs> Sarah, I, most of the people who know me, I would say maybe all the people who know me have experienced me just going, I found a job vacancy that you'd be really good at. Just out of the blue. Yeah, just because, so there's a thing that I really enjoy. I really enjoy um, optimising things. Like, here are a set of constraints. What's the best possible outcome you can get, right? Damn right. And, and so I could spend a lot of time like thinking about holidays and things like that. But one of the things I think about is like, okay, I've got this friend. I know they're earning this much. And so what else, what else could they do? And lots of people don't look for stuff. And I, yeah, I, I love, I love looking at job ads. Um, it's, That's, it's a market, you know, other people have Tinder. <laughs> I think you're the first person I've ever met who said, I enjoy looking at job ads. Well, someone's got to. True. Sounds like you're a gift to the world. Yeah. <laughs> Has it worked? Have your friends got better jobs? Yeah, I, I've had some successes. Um, yeah, and so one of the things um, I wanted to mention was that if anyone is thinking about um, particularly applying to the civil service, which is a thing that I know something about, um, then yeah, I'm very happy to um, cheerlead for if you're just thinking of applying for a job. Um, I am always, but it's like, I don't like talking on the internet. I'm, I find it really difficult. Um, but on like on the Asperger's board that I hang out on is like the only time I will say something is when someone's like, I've got a job interview. I'll be like, you'll be amazing. <laughs> 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 oh, jobs are fantastic. Um, yeah. 
fantastic. Um, well, let's just talk a bit about um, your experiences of work then. Yes. Um, use that. Um, so, what's it like being autistic working in the civil service slash for government? For government. Um, I, I really like the civil service. Yeah. I think it is a really good place to work. Um, there are ups and downs, like, like all jobs, but I think they, they give it a good try. Um, tomorrow, I'm going to a diversity and equality away day at London Zoo. Come to DEFRA. <laughs> because that's the sort of fun thing uh, that, that happens at DEFRA. Um, so, so I think it is a really good place to work. Um, I, when I finished university, um, a friend of mine uh, joined the graduate scheme at Bloomberg at the same time that I joined the graduate scheme at the civil service. And he was kind of having to work all his weekends and work, you know, 60, 70 hour weeks. Mm. Um, and I think the job really worked out for him, but I was much better placed um, in the civil service where, you know, genuinely they are uh, open to recruiting people with disabilities. They are open to flexible working. Um, they, they try and make an effort um, in, in policy terms. Um, to think about these things, to be open about these things, um, in a way that I find <laughs> I find really warming, mm. um, and it doesn't mean that they always get things right. And on an individual, you know, individual managers might be managing one person, so it it can be a little bit hit and miss. But there is a kind of machine there behind you in terms of the guidance and the HR policies that are quite supportive. Well, I think that that actually brought things to an end. So, um, thank you, C, so much for coming on. That was that was really good. I, I really learned a lot about labour markets and why they're cool, um, and uh, about you know um, how that ties in with like actual human life, uh, which I thought was particularly interesting. That was enlightening, I must say. So, thank you. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thanks very much. Maybe we'll have you on again. Uh,